In this practice, I don't mean to diminish the sort of fullness of life, the full complicatedness of life. But what I do mean to do is to attend very fully. That's my hope. And by attending very fully, it also means I'm attending to what is astonishingly beautiful. So that kind of thing of like, oh, you're looking on the bright side of things. I say, I'm not looking at the bright side of things. I'm just trying to look at everything. I'm very capable of looking at what's miserable. (laughs) Hello, I'm James Shaheen, and this is Life As It Is. I'm here with my co-host, Sharon Salzberg, and you just heard poet and essayist Ross Gay. In 2016, Ross set out to document a delight each day for a year. After he published the Book of Delights, his friend asked him if he planned to continue his practice. Five years later, he began the Book of More Delights, demonstrating that the sources of delight are endless, and that they multiply when attended to and shared. With characteristic humor and grace, he chronicles his everyday encounters with delight, from the fleeting sweetness of strangers to the startling beauty of the falsetto, to the unexpected joys of aging. In our conversation with Ross, we talk about why he believes delight is evidence of our interconnectedness, how he understands faith, and how to find delight even in awkward encounters. Ross also reads an essay from his new book. So here's my conversation with Ross. Okay, so I'm here with writer Ross Gay, my co-host Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Ross. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you both. Same. Good to be with you. Hi. I guess I should say welcome back, Ross. (laughs) Thanks for having me. This is the second time. You know, first it was Book of Delights. Now it's Book of More Delights, which is a delight. (laughs) Very creative. Very creative title. (laughs) Book of Delights too, right? Yeah, yeah. But the world called for more more delight. So can you tell me how this sequel came about? Yeah, and I talk about this a little bit in the um, introduction. Basically, when I was finishing the book, my buddy Patrick Rosal is a writer and we share work and stuff. He asked me if I was going to keep doing the practice of writing. For people who don't know the premise of the book or the way the book works is that every day for a year, I write a short essay about something that delights me. And when I finished the first one in 2017, my buddy asked me if I was going to keep doing it. And I had other stuff to get to, but it did make me think, oh, maybe I'll do it every X number of years. So I decided five years. And that's kind of how it came to be. So is this going to be a lifelong practice as far as you can tell? It might be. Yeah, it might be. Like, you know, we'll see. But it's pleasant. You know, in a way for me, I like to write essays. And it's a neat frame for me to just be able to like put a little bracket around things and to write essays. It feels like I get around to thinking about what I need to think about one way or another. Well, I'm all for getting these every five years, so thank you. Oh, good. (laughs) This one is great. We'll look forward to the next. But could you tell us more about the process of writing the delights? What constraints did you give yourself? So first thing is daily. I write them every day. And then I give myself 30 minutes to do them. And then I, for the most part, I write them by hand. Very occasionally, I wouldn't write them by hand. And very occasionally, they take more than 30 minutes. That's just the first draft. But so it's a daily practice. At first, I was calling it a, I can't remember, like a discipline or something. And then I said, you know, let's call it a practice. And that's how it goes. This year, I wrote them all in um, notebooks, the grade books that I got from where I teach. <laughs> so, so it's like a, there's a whole shelf of like, you know, the grade books for what delight. Yeah, I, I was listening to a podcast with Jennifer Egan and she talked about writing by hand. So I have to ask you, why do you write by hand? 
until I had written The Delights. I had mostly written by him. So that was familiar to me anyway. But as I was doing it, I did realize there is a kind of thinking that happens by hand that doesn't happen on the computer. And a big part of that thinking is that I'm not deleting big parts of my thinking. So I'm able to track the way that my thinking arrives where it does. And that to me is very interesting to sort of see how we got to where we got. And so when I'm doing it by hand, I think I'm more inclined to actually leave some of the remnants of that, you know, some of the trail of how I got to where I arrive at. So the last time you were on the show, you had just published a book on joy. So I'm curious, how do you think about the difference between joy and delight? And and how would you define each of them? Maybe that's a tough question, but I thought I'd ask it anyway. No, it's a, it's a good, I like that question. And I don't know that I'd, I'd ask it back to, because one of the things I think of delight, it's like occasional, like the hummingbird lands very close to you and you feel delight, which now I'm starting to feel like among the definitions for delight is something like the pleasant evidence of our connection or something like that. But joy, I feel like is just there and you can you sort of enter into it. In a way, joy feels like the connection itself and delight feels like the little bells you know, the little reminders that, oh, there's this fundamental connection here. So that's how I think of it. Delight more occasional, joy more sort of ever-present and in a way sort of waiting. You sound a little like Sharon now, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is tough. I mean, words are fascinating. You know, there's awe and there's wonder and there's delight and there's happiness and there's joy. And I remember a, a journalist once saying to me that no one was really interested in happiness anymore. They were only interested in joy. And I said, I find that very unfortunate because I have the word happiness in most of my book titles. (laughs) You know, that's that's really a sad thing to hear. But part of my question is, you've said that one of the unexpected perks of writing a book about delight is that readers will reach out to you to share their own practices of delight. And I'm wondering if you actually first found a different response from people using the word joy and using the word delight. It's funny. I think what you're talking about, like people being interested in joy instead of happiness Mm -hmm. or whatever, people will have the same response to the word joy for sure and delight. And they'll think that I'm talking about something that is, I don't know, that's not serious. I I don't know. And I was at a reading recently, maybe, you know, six months ago, and a a woman was in the front row and she was just like not interested. As I sort of explained what I was thinking about in these books, she actually softened and was like, okay, I'm ready for this. But she didn't want to hear about just like happy little stuff, you know, (laughs) And, um, and it was sort of interesting. One of the things you say, which is so fascinating, is that delight compels us to share. Yeah. And so I think there must be quite a bit of discovery you go through as others share their delights with you. It's one of the pleasures of this, which I could never have anticipated at all. One of the pleasures of having written these books is that, yeah, people will say, oh, this delighted me. This thing delighted me. You know, sometimes I'll get a little letter or I'll get, you know, people at a line or something will want to do that. And it's an interesting thing because it's like, that makes one's life a little bit more pleasant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I did not expect that. At the same time, people also, and this feels very interesting and moving to me, people will also say that the book was a friend to me during this incredible crisis. And that feels also moving. That feels instructive in some way. It feels like there's something really relevant and important to the thing of like what it means to be in the presence of people who are not dismissing or diminishing the suffering of each other, but are also in the midst of it able to call attention to what is incomprehensibly beautiful. And that feels really important. 
But also the other thing that's been really interesting to me, and I hadn't anticipated it, is that there are a lot of people who sort of say, oh, yeah, we started a delight practice, you know, and it looks like any number of things. But people get on Zoom and like doing a delight every morning or something like that. That's another thing I could not have anticipated exactly. Although looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah. What's the kind of practice? It's daily. It's sort of got constraints. It's a thing that's in a way easy to kind of plug into. Another thing you say that's very interesting is that you've come to appreciate how delight is given to us. So what does it mean for delight to be given to us? That follows the other thing. Like people will often thank me because they now have this delight practice that they do with their friends. And I tried to remember to be like, this thing is given to me. Like all I'm doing is like paying attention. And in a way, it's sort of like that practice, which itself feels like a practice to remember that I'm just paying attention. I'm not making the stuff. I'm just paying attention. That's how it feels like it's given to me. You know, we have a garden and this time of year, like it's amazing. Among the amazing things, it's like these hummingbirds are showing up and I'm just paying attention. I'm just noting it. So in that way, it feels like it's given to me and to, for whomever this book is useful. And for those who feel like I'm giving it to them, I'm like, yeah, we're all giving it to each other. And that feels like there's a kind of bounty, which feels nice. Well, in in Buddhist traditions, one of the sublime states is mudita or sympathetic joy or appreciative joy, it's sometimes called, which is really joy in the happiness of others. Totally. You know, instead of falling sway to so much envy or jealousy, it's really actually taking delight in the happiness of others. Yeah. So I wonder if you could say something about that. That feels also like a thing that I learned writing the first book was that so often I'd be, you know, there's an essay in that first book where I talk about there's a baby walking, a little kid, toddler walking down the row of an airplane. And the adults couldn't not freak out. They were just so <laughs> excited mm-hmm. by this baby. And I was in the midst of reading this book about something horrible. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and eventually I had to kind of put it down to, you know, enjoy all of the enjoyment that I was in the midst of. And it was like this kind of wonderful, pure enjoyment. And I do feel like that's a thing that I started to learn that so much of my delight was actually delighting at the delight of other people in the way that we do when we let ourselves. It feels like it's kind of built in and it feels nice to sort of be practicing that built-in thing. You know, you mentioned paying attention. I'm just paying attention. And I loved it when you wrote, you're not being optimistic, you're just paying attention. Yeah. So do you think delight has shaped or even restructured how you pay attention? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Because there's all these things that I just, I feel like just by doing this practice, I've kind of one, gathered a kind of reservoir of things that now I know, oh, that's happening. That delights me. As opposed to it's just happening. I feel like it is this thing that I'm sort of like, oh, yeah, that's a, oh, that's another thing that I love, actually, something like that. That's one of the things that I found myself arguing a little bit with the delights of the kind of optimistic practice, in part because I'm sort of like, one is that in this practice, I don't mean to diminish, like I said, the sort of fullness of life, the full complicatedness of life. But what I do mean to do is to attend very fully. That's my hope. And by attending very fully, it also means I'm attending to what is astonishingly beautiful. So that kind of thing of like, oh, you're looking on the bright side of things. I say, I'm not looking at the bright side of things. I'm just trying to look at everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to look at everything. I'm very capable of looking at what's miserable. Right. Well, that, that's kind of a default. I mean, this, we need a Yeah, that's not hard. Right. You know, often what you're fully attentive to is what we might otherwise take for granted or consider ordinary. But in your work, the common or the everyday becomes unfamiliar and new. 
and sometimes in a startling way. So I'm wondering how this relates to your background as a poet. We recently had the poet Jane Hirschfeld on the podcast, and she talked about the process of defamiliarization. Do you see a connection between your poetry and your openness to this type of wonder or seeing in the common or everyday or the taken for granted something extraordinary? I think there's probably something to the practice of writing poems, how I try to do it, which is to at least on one hand be, I mean, at the basic level, be trying to sort of make, handle, use language in a way that does in fact defamiliarize our understanding. I feel like that might be a way to think about about it first. But the other thing that I think about with poems is that it is, again, for me, the way I try to write poems is to kind of pay attention to something with a kind of precision or a kind of accuracy or a kind of like intensity that does make whatever the thing is transform in the process of my observation. Like I'm not trying to transform anything. I'm trying to pay very close attention to something. And then by now I know that for the most part, usually when I pay close attention to things, they transform to some extent. Right. You know, I do feel like you know, writing poems can be a good practice for like just noticing. Yeah, you describe ordinary experiences or sometimes experiences that might be negative in ways in, uh, that show us how to take joy in them. I mean, I really laughed when you went camping. You and your partner were ill-prepared. <laughs> you were wearing cotton and um, not according to the veteran you come across says is lethal. <laughs> cotton, I never, cotton is lethal. Who knew? And she's basically berating you for being so ill-prepared. And rather than taking offense, you see the humor and sort of the joy in that situation too. So I, I really appreciated that. And I got a good laugh out of it. You say that wonder is an experience where the world is made to you anew. Can you say more about what delight has taught you about being perpetually wonderstruck, even in the face of these situations that might otherwise be difficult? <laughs> like, I, I have to go back to the camping one, and that was so funny. <laughs> it was funny. I think maybe one of the things about this practice, it's funny, the, the way you raise it makes me think differently, um, is that it might be the case that there's always... Like, I'm trying to think about the, the way that a practice sort of grounds something and it orients something and maybe it sort of has guardrails on it in a certain kind of way. Like, I know some about it. But it might be the case that if while I'm doing this practice, I'm wondering every day, kind of alert in a certain kind of way to what's going to delight me. It's starting with a question, I wonder, you know, I wonder what's going to delight me. And I wonder, too, saying that word a lot, if that experience of not knowing what's going to delight you sort of prepares the ground of like not knowing the vocation for the year is to like not know maybe there's a first knowing which is like something's probably going to delight me but the not knowing is like i don't know what it is so the delight in a way it feels like that practice of just being not sure feels to some extent or maybe to a large extent connected to wonder which to me feels like a kind of fundamental unknowing what do you think what do i think i think that that's an excellent way to go about it because if i already know Nothing's going to be new. Nothing's going to inspire wonder. I mean, this is the second time we've had you on, and I think you've become unwittingly more Buddhist. <laughs> more Buddhist than me, for sure. <laughs> That's not fair, but yeah, it's just very interesting. Not knowing is something that comes up a lot in Buddhism. It's like beginner's mind, more or less. But I was really amazed. I thought, if somebody berated me like that on a camping trail, I don't know if I would have taken joy in it. <laughs> But you're really good at this, you know. It took some pride. It took some, uh, I acknowledge that I'm like, man, she was really going, going after me. Well, you, that's there too. That's there too. But all of it is a joy. Yeah, the, you know? All of yeah, it is yeah, a delight, yeah. I yeah. should say. Yeah, that's right. 
Well, in my experience, that's a really interesting moment when I realized that my habit, my conditioning is such to see what's wrong and to yeah. what's worrisome. And I can complain about in contrast to, you know, what else happened today? <laughs> and yeah, anything yeah. good? And to realize that it's like a rut, it's a habit. And moving out of it takes not force or violence, but intentionality. Mm -hmm. It's like, what else mm -hmm. happened today? Yeah. Or where is the good in this? And people think that's hypocritical or stupid, you know, like you're just kind of walking around with a smile on your face, not really feeling anything, but it's not true. It just, it opens us to parts of our life of our truth that we're not hanging out with a lot, you know, it's kind of yeah, unfamiliar. Yeah. And, and there's something whole about that and, and fulfilling. And you also write very beautifully that one of the purposes of the beautiful is to bring us to wordlessness and grant us silence, which is another way of not knowing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering how you view the connection between beauty and silence. One thing I want to say about what you were saying, too, is that acknowledgement of like the and what else, mm -hmm. what else today. It also feels like that. Again, I wonder about that as an opening question you know, as opposed to a closing question, like the, the question of like, what do we love? Mm -hmm. What do I love? As opposed to all of which is also important, what is coming for me, but like, what do we love in common or what, what was beautiful or what was given to you? Those things feel to me really like sort of opening questions that sort of bring us closer to one another, make us, help us to acknowledge our connection to one another, which to me then sort of further inclines us to make those things possible for one another. They grow the thing that they witnessed. It feels to me in some way. But beauty and silence, that's such a good question. That essay that you're mentioning, it's an essay about the mostly 80s pop group DeBarge. And I'm sort of, but I'm talking about the falsetto and that the falsetto sometimes is beautiful enough that it can kind of stun us into silence. You know, it might come back to the same thing that silence is evidence of wonder. It's evidence of the unknown. And sometimes the beautiful, what is sort of startlingly beautiful, part of what makes it startlingly beautiful is that we can't conceptualize it or we can't wrap our minds around it. And so we get to just be silent in the face of it. I wonder if it's that. Well, so much of the book centers on the physicality of delight. And I'm wondering, how does delight feel in your body? And what about joy? Is it different? That's also a good way to sort of like what of taxonomizing, you know, delight and joy. I do feel like joy is a. Like I'm more inclined to weep and joy. There's something about that. In a way, it almost might be more like disassembling joy. Like there might be something more in that beautiful way of sort of unbecoming with joy. Whereas delight, again, it feels like a bell or something. It feels more like yeah, that kind of thing, that kind of sweet startling. But joy for me, when I'm feeling joy and the experiences that I've had of joy and also the experiences that I've had that in retrospect may have been joy, but were not were terrifying. It feels like becoming something else, disappearing in some kind of way. Sometimes we feel ambivalent about joy or delight. We almost feel like an inability to fully feel it or embrace it. We might even feel some vague sense of guilt about it. What about that? I mean, I think that to me is an immature, when I say immature, I don't mean that with judgment. I mean, like it feels like an immature understanding of what something like joy is, mm -hmm. the way I think of joy. You know, it's kind of like a commercial. And of course, feeling like you're, you know, dancing with your new car, <laughs> that's joy. Then that's like, right. whatever, who cares? Yeah. But when I'm talking about joy or delight and thinking of it as being in the midst of our lives, right. which are full and complicated, and we just know that we know, you know, 
we're going to die, <laughs> all those things. Yeah, I tend to think that we suffer from a lack of it, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I understand the pattern just because I have it, you know, and because I work so often and with great joy with, with caregivers, yeah. you know, people who yeah, yeah. either in their families or in their professional lives are really on the front lines of suffering. And it's very hard to feel you do deserve this delight, you know, and right. the way I approach it is really trying to think through more deeply, like, where does resilience come from? Like, yeah. what happens when that avenue is blocked, you know, and you're not getting fed in that way and you get depleted and you get exhausted, even more exhausted and utterly crash in the end. And so I think you're right. We don't understand it quite. And so the word I tend to use is incomplete. Like I feel good when I have something nice happen. That's true. But yeah. I also feel good when I can breathe, you know, and like yeah. connect yeah. or I see someone else yeah. being so good. I'm filled with some feeling, which helps me keep going. Yeah, for sure. I agree. You know, another recurring theme of the book is time. And you write that though the nominal subject of the book is delight, the real subject is the passage of time. Can you say more about how your relationship to time has shifted over the years? How have you been noticing time's passage differently? Well, you know, my mother's outside in the kitchen. She's been here for five days. She just turned 82. Every time we're here, we talk about my father's death, you know, six, from like 19 years ago. God, it's a significant part of our experience. But, you know, like to be with your mother. Who, and then she's like, I just turned 49. And she's like, God, Rossi. <laughs> I think it's probably the case for most people, but the older you get, the more you're like, huh, this thing, it's just, this is the thing, this time business, you know? I don't know. I mean, the answer to your question is, I don't quite know. I do understand that sometimes there, like for instance, the fact of this book being five years after the first book, that's why I say the nominal subject of this book is passage of time, because a few times I'm referencing what happened five years ago. And there's something like sort of you know, we just know embedded in that story is like, oh, and then if you do this every five years, there will be a last one. It might be this one, but it might be like four down the road or it might be, you know, who knows. But that to me is like, in a way, it makes it extra interesting. And in a way, it actually adds that layer to like, when you're talking about delight and you're also talking about aging, you're talking about delight and you're also talking about dying. Right. It does seem like getting older plays a larger role in this collection. <laughs> <laughs> and you chronicle what you call the many jewels of aging. Could you share a bit about how getting older then has shifted your relationship to joy and delight? Has it changed how you're experiencing these states? Yeah. I mean, I feel like one is that I've sort of given myself the task of like attending to the states. You know, I don't know that I, when I was say 30, I yet had the wherewithal or the chops or the interest or whatever to quite be. It's very interesting to me now. And among the reasons I think joy and delight are so interesting to me is because I'm deeply in belief of the fact that we're all connected. I believe this deep and fundamental connection. And I suspect when I was like a kid, I didn't want to believe that. And I think there are probably like significant parts of myself that still don't want to believe that. But I feel like that's probably where a lot of my pain in my life comes from, that I don't want to be connected. You know, I want to sort of isolate. So I think that might be one sort of significant way that the older I get, my relationship to delight and joy change, you know? Like I'm very interested in this idea of joy, in part because I'm interested in spending my time paying attention to how we're connected. It's much more interesting to me now than paying attention to how we're not connected which I've spent a lot of time doing. But I feel like the much more interesting thing is paying attention to how we're connected. 
Yeah, I mean, I think here of the what they're referring to as the epidemic of loneliness. It seems that people do not feel so connected. But you've also said the most interesting thing about us humans is that we die and we change, which resonates deeply with Buddhist teachings, although I won't push any more Buddhism onto you, Ross. You seem a natural at this. How do you see our mortality as an occasion for joy? If that's like one of the grounds of our being together, it feels like that's one of the things that we really share. That for the start, you know, like I feel like there's something really moving about walking down the street and seeing whoever it is walking toward me and being like, oh, yeah, you two will die. We're both going to be dead. I think that's an interesting ground to sort of operate on. But I also think there's also this sort of this shared fleetingness of things that if we can kind of get a handle of that, be less afraid of that, be curious about that. It also seems to me to be like a ground of sharing, to be practicing witnesses of like how fleet this whole thing is. I feel like that offers a kind of possibility for generosity, a different kind of generosity, if we think that that's another thing that we don't share. I'm going to die, but you're not, or vice versa. <laughs> we do sometimes go about our lives as if that were true. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Coming up, Ross talks about our capacity to care for one another, the relationship between faith and doubt, and how he understands our messiness and unpredictability. For the past 32 years, Tricycle the Buddhist Review has been a leading source of Buddhist news, culture, and conversation. When you become a Tricycle subscriber, you'll enjoy quarterly issues of the print and digital magazine, plus so much more, including monthly Dharma Talk videos, film club screenings, virtual events, online course discounts, and access to our 30-year archive. Subscribe today for as little as $6.99 per month at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Now let's get back to our conversation with Ross Gay. You also write about how delight can occasion and be occasioned by faith, faith in each other and our capacity for these are such great words, mutual, radiant, unpredictable, sloppy, mycelial, transgressive care. Could you say more about how you understand faith? That feels like a lesson for me regularly, and maybe this is part of the practice of this delight thing. It's interesting. In the first book, I had this, this essay where I, well, I can't remember what I call it, but where I'd been like writing a bunch of ideas for delights, that just ideas. And eventually I had to get rid of them because that wasn't the practice. The practice was to have a delight every day. And to have a delight every day was a kind of faith that there would be a delight every day, which I think comes from practice. I feel like in this instance, the faith follows the practice. The practice is the, has provided the evidence that, oh yeah, you can have faith in this thing. So maybe that's how I would say that faith and delight or faith and joy sort of arrive together, you know, or how, how they have a connection to one another. It feels very much that there's another one in this book. I can't remember which one it is, but where I sort of the evidence, oh yeah, I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking about my friend Kate's cat, you know, she got lost and whatever. And in the essay, I sort of reveal that every time I see a, you know, little sign on a telephone pole that says lost cat, I'm like, oh man, that's a bummer. You're never gonna see your cat again. <laughs> And in a way, I'm sort of like, oh, yeah, I have a kind of faith. And my faith in that universe compels me to contribute to that universe, which is to say that when I see, oh, bummer, I'm not looking around for anyone's cat. Yeah. Nor yeah, yeah. am I like if my friend's cat gets lost, I'm not like helping them out. 
Right. You know, and I've been an asshole. I say in there, I've been an asshole on account of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My friend Kate, on the other hand, has faith in this other kind of, you know, cat rescuing universe. And she made signs and her cat got back to her. She did get back uh, to her. All right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, and in a way, the other thing that kind of comes from that is that because it's a beautiful story, actually, her cat got lost. She put up signs. She goes to the place where her cat got lost, which is behind like a strip mall and kind of like a murky, swampy area. And she goes out there at dawn at one day, shortly after the cat gets lost. And there are people out there calling her cat's name. That's a kind of faith that she gave me. But it was, you know, it was just sort of like, in a way you kind of need, I don't know, I needed to sort of have a reason to sort of have that faith. Like in a way, the thing that I'm thinking about in that essay, I, I sort of say often these things are given to you by other people. Someone has to teach you. Oh, no, no, no. People actually, like, when you put signs up, people, like, kind of try to take care of you. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I wrote a book called Faith. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a topic I'm, I'm very, very interested in. And one of the reasons I wrote it, I realized later, looking back, was that I have a, a kind of passion for redeeming words, you know, words that used to maybe be useful for us in our lives or uplifting or opening in some way. And then through association and the different ways they get used, they get maybe a very negative connotation. And certainly that was the case when I was writing Faith, you know, people would say to me, why are you doing that? You know, my friends. And and clearly for them, there was an association between faith and being silenced and not being able to ask questions. And you're using it really in an opposite kind of way. Right. Bringing us to not knowing and and a kind of opening. And it's very, very different. Yeah, I had a friend once I remember, it was kind of blew my mind when we were kids, we were like in college or something, and he said, faith doesn't exist without doubt, uh-huh. something like that. And I remember that that was such a beautiful, for me, observation, like, oh yeah, there's some degree of suspension. And also questioning and opening, you know, it's like, and you could yeah. say, like when I was writing the book, I had a freelance editor and she said, what's the opposite of faith? Isn't it doubt? And I said, well, no, not from the Buddhist perspective, because right. the right kind of doubt, which is a sincere questioning, not being cynical, we can sort of be full of doubt, which is really just a mask for fear. Like, I don't know if I can do it, so I'll pretend it's not worth doing, you know? Yeah, 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 but yeah. when it's the right kind of questioning and, and not knowing and insisting on seeing the truth for yourself, it only enhances faith. And then she said, to me, well, if it's not doubt, what is the opposite of faith? And I had, as usual, one of those experiences where I just heard this word come out of my mouth, and that word was despair. Well, yeah, you know, yeah, because yeah. the faith is that which also connects us, maybe to our inner strengths, to a bigger picture of life, to a sense of maybe the cat will come back. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it will. It's not that kind of faith, you know. But yeah, maybe, maybe. And so the opposite of connection is the severing of connection, which is despair. Yeah, that's right. And it comes back also to the the second part of the question earlier about change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That nothing is going to change, even in our relationships or like that each other, you know, in addition to just being sad. That is a despair is a good way. Yeah, it's just like, no, this is never going to change. I'm also curious how you understand our messiness and unpredictability, which has come up a few times in this conversation. Yeah, that comes back to that change business. Like, I feel like another thing that age has something to do, I think, getting older, our messiness and unpredictability, I feel like that's a thing that one, I'm more sort of comfortable paying attention to in myself. You know, not not totally comfortable, <laughs> but more comfortable. 
but also there's a kind of like um, that we are not one thing, you know, and that we are many things, in fact, and that we are many things in the process of becoming many more things. That to me, again, like the fact that we die, the fact that we change and we are not one thing is so interesting to me. And that feels to me, again, like this sort of a kind of faith. Yeah, a kind of faith that also inclines me to feel tender toward, you know, when I can kind of hold that, like, oh, yeah, we're changing. We're changing. Like, I don't know what I'm going to be tomorrow or next week, but I also don't know what anyone else or anything else is going to be tomorrow or next week. That feels like, although, again, it's a kind of groundlessness, it feels also like a kind of potential for, you know, sweetness in a way. Like, oh, what are you going to be? Where are you going? You know, Ross, in this book, you begin with your birthday, and I was reading it on Sharon's birthday, and I thought, I wonder what he wrote on my birthday. Oh. <laughs> so so I, I'm a little biased, but I really liked what you wrote on my birthday. Uh, you wrote a piece. Which is what thing is it? It was uh, February 1st. It was my neighbor's face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could read that for us. Yeah, let me find that. My neighbor's face. As I was walking home today, my neighbor pulled up next to me in his car, rolled his window down and said, very gently, hey Ross, while pointing at our car, which has a crumpled rear end and the back windshield busted out. It's a mess. He looked alarmed, worried and concerned, which explains his tone of voice, solemn, soft, pointing from the seat of his car to ours. This dude with whom I suspect I perhaps do not share some values. How long can I abide in myself the infantile, arrogant notion that I would know anything about anyone's values without asking them what they value, myself included? I mean to say, I bet I didn't vote like my neighbor in 2020. Maybe there was a sign or a sticker. Which, if we're being real, might not actually have all that much to do with values. Or political parties, and perhaps more explicitly the heads of those parties, do not have values. They have donors, they have shareholders, and they have promises, both parties, which more and more seem like one party, that they have no intention to keep. Oh, I guess I stand corrected. Those are values. But for values I would like to share with my neighbor, I aspire to share with my neighbor, along with knowing his name, which is sort of step one in being a good neighbor, which places me at step zero, trailing him on that front. Let me simply report what he said to me, Softly, just as I hope I also would do if I saw my neighbor's car crunched up, making my face as loving and tender as I could, just in case of the worst, as he did, looking over at the wreckage, pointing, is she okay? He didn't mean the car. That would be a difference of values. He meant the most often driver of the car, Stephanie. We then had a nice laugh about it once it was established all was okay. It was Stephanie's very rubbery 27-year-old son driving, and he was okay, as was the driver of the truck who rear-ended him. My neighbor exhaled loudly, shaking his head and said, Phew, look bad. Then he lauded the Honda, patting the door of the one he was driving, which, though I'd seen him driving it at least one million times, if you were to have asked me earlier, I would have told you, with great conviction, that he drives a Chevy or a Ford. And after we were together praising the Honda, me mainly about mileage and how long they seemed to run, he said something technical about axles or carburetors or WD-40 or something, 
And I pretended I understood and nodded and laughed and thanked him for checking on us. You know, that's really wonderful. One of the reasons I picked it, aside from the fact that it was written on my birthday, (laughs) uh, one of the reasons I picked it is that we live in such polarizing times and these spontaneous expressions of concern seem to affirm our capacity to care for each other, to feel connected, as you say, despite the fact that so much in the culture works against that. So that was really lovely. Thank you. Thank you for noticing that, yeah. Before we close, I'm wondering what's been delighting you today? Like I said, my mom coming here, she hasn't been here for for a few years. And to have her here, you know, we have a pretty sweet garden and we dug potatoes and made potatoes and green beans the other night. And just having kind of a slow, sweet time with my mother has been really, really, really delightful, really lovely. Yeah. So nice. So, James, I want to ask you, too. What (laughs) what delights me today? I was just about to say this podcast today has really delighted me. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Ross. What delights you today, Sharon? (laughs) Okay. Well, now you've pointed out several things. I'm delighted that Ross is with his mother. I'm delighted that (laughs) this podcast has has been so wonderful. And I'd say finding some space in my day has really brought me a lot of delight. Mm. Yeah. Ross, do you have anything else to add? No, I just, yeah, it's been really nice. I love, it was fun talking last time. It's fun talking because it feels like the deepening of the questions. I just so I'm grateful for the questions and to be in conversation with you all. It feels like keeping the unknown sort of fluttering, which feels lovely. Well, we'll definitely do it again. I'm sure Sharon is on board with that too. Oh, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Does someone have to write another book or can we do it before then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we'll figure out a way. Okay. So Ross, thanks so much for joining us. It's truly a delight. For our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of the book of More Delights, available now. We like to close these podcasts with a short guided meditation. So, Sharon? Thank you. Thank you all so much. If you want to just sit comfortably, you can close your eyes or not. However you feel most at ease. Just settle your attention on the natural flow of the in and out breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly the nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen. And the operative word here is rest. We rest our attention gently on the breath. Sometimes the image is used of resting our attention lightly, like a bird settling on a flower. There's something so easeful out of recognizing that we're breathing anyway. All we need to do is feel it. Nothing extra, nothing strained. You don't have to get ready for even the very next breath. It's just this one. I'm going to ask you for a few moments to think of something in your life today, yesterday, very immediate, that you feel grateful to when you notice it. It may be something you overlook. It may be something seemingly small. And it may bring up all kinds of feelings like embarrassment or this is stupid or 
I've got to concentrate some more on the pain or my problems or whatever happens, it's fine. You can let all those feelings arise. See what it's like when you stretch a little bit and you kind of point the flashlight of your attention onto that which has been good, something, just one thing. Because we're not moving from like the complaints, which are the only truth to something that's fanciful or funny. We're moving to a truth that we may hardly ever look at. So let's give it a little airtime. And you can bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. When you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Thank you. We'll do this again. It's a lot of fun. Good. Yeah, for sure. Have a good one. It's good to see you all. You too. You've been listening to Life As It Is with Ross Gay. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep up with the show, you can follow Tricycle Talks wherever you listen to podcasts. Tricycle Talks and Life As It Is are produced by Sarah Fleming and The Podglomerate. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.